Hello and welcome to Lunch with Lee. I'm your host Shane Lee. Today on the show, Ian Chappell, a former Australian cricketer, captain and commentator. He played 75 tests for the Australian cricket team, scoring 5,345 runs at 42.42, including 14 centuries. He's arguably the greatest career captain of all time and since retirement from cricket has pursued a high-profile career in sports journalism and cricket commentating. Away from cricket, he's a lover of tennis, snooker and music. And Chris Thomas, an English record producer who worked with the likes of the Beatles, Pink Floyd, Elton John, Paul McCartney, Pete Townsend, In Excess and The Pretenders to name a few. Away from music, he's a foodie and a lover of the game of cricket and he doesn't mind a beer either. Let's get started. Let's get started. On the show today, Ian Chappell, a former Australian cricketer, captain and commentator. He's arguably the greatest career captain of all time, in my opinion anyway. Welcome, Chappelle. Thanks very much, Shane. Mate, great to have you on the show. And uh, Chris Thomas, who's been on the show before, he's one of my favourites. He's an English record producer who's worked with the likes of the Beatles, Pink Floyd, Elton John, Paul McCartney, Pete Townsend, In Excess and the Pretenders, to name a few. Um, and he doesn't mind a beer either. Welcome, Chris. <laughs> Hi. How are you, boys? Chappelle, I want to start with you, mate. You Now, you you were playing your uh, your snooker grand final last night. It went for three hours, I believe. <laughs> yeah, best of three frames. Um, <clears throat> we had black ball first frame, black ball second frame. And I think I got up in the third frame. Uh, I think my opponent needed snookers one night once I potted the blue. So there was a lot of safety, but the poor blokes who were waiting to come on after us, <laughs> uh, they had a long wait. <laughs> and Chris, uh, mate, what takes up your time these days, mate? I know you, you still you love your music, but um, you had a you had a little bit of bad news almost a year ago. Now you had a, mm. a, a tumor removed from your stomach. That's right. Yep. Uh, but you're in full recovery now. Yep, yep, pretty much. Yeah, yep, and all good. I think I left a few marbles in the operating <laughs> table, but apart from that. <laughs> and um, when you when do you think we're going to see? Concerts back to the norm, do you think? Back to the norm, that's a bit difficult to say. Yeah. I mean, they're supposed to be doing the uh, Blues Fest thing, aren't they, up in okay. uh, Byron Bay? This, that this that coming might have hit a roadblock with, yeah, what's, with, happening. with what's happened. Yeah. I mean, I, that's the point. I don't think you can make plans nowadays. No. Mm. You know? And Chappelle, you, you love music, don't you? I've been to the Blues Fest a couple of times. This is going way back. Um, problem being that there were no chairs and you had to stand up. And I mean, some of the acts were so good. You go there at midday and you're sort of leaving at midnight and if you stood up for yeah. that long, I mean, I was quite a bit younger then, but even yeah. standing up for that long, and my wife, you know, she would, she'd go back after halfway. So what we started doing then, most of the acts would come to Sydney, you know, either before or after yeah. The, yeah. the Blues Fest. So we'd just sort of go and see them, you know, guys like uh, Jimmy Vaughan, for instance. Yeah. I remember going to see him at the Metro, I think. Um, the, the big one, Barb has always been a huge Clapton fan. Yes. And she sort of, I mean, I, I knew a bit about Clapton, but she really got me into Clapton. And um, I, I remember saying to Barb, I don't think Clapton's coming back to Australia. We're going to have to go to him. Mm. So <clears throat> I said to her, I haven't done, you know, we haven't done anything special for your birthday for a, a while. Her birthday is coming up soon, actually, in April. And I said, why don't we do a Clapton concert. So I had a look and he was in Rotterdam and Barb was born in Holland. Oh, wow. And he was in Rotterdam about two days before her birthday. I said, what do you think? She said, yeah, that's terrific. So for some reason or other, I looked at the program again about two days later and he was on at the Royal Albert for a week. 
And I said to Barb, Royal Albert or Rotterdam? She said, Royal Albert. (laughs) And I must have been saying this in front of Warney and Warney said, oh, I've got a mate in England. That's his job. He, you know, he gets mm. uh, concert tickets. Here's his number ring. So I rang the guy and said, mate, all seven if you can get them. Yeah. But as many. Anyhow, he got us three nights, uh, two in a row and then a miss and then another one. And the first night he got us backstage. So, wow. So we met Clapton. So that was that was a big highlight. Did you come across him, Chris? Yeah, Clapton? yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. How did you find him? It's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, it's great. I worked with him once on an Elton track. Right, okay. He played on a track called Runaway Train. Yeah, he came and we recorded it. I think we did the backing track in France or something, but when we came over to England and uh, he just put his bit on separately. So hey. that was pretty special. I was just thinking going back to the days of fest- uh, going back to the festivals in the 60s, you yeah. see, when they were invented, the whole idea is you didn't stand up if you look at any film of festivals in the 60s, we're all lying down. <laughs> was there, was there a reason for that? Yeah, of course. But, I mean, also, you could stay there, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. uh, this standing yeah. up, Lark, I agree with you. Oh, yeah. do, do you have a festival that stands out, that one you, uh, you, you, you watched in person? Uh, yeah, there's a couple. I went to the Dylan one, the Isle of Wight, and that was quite interesting because they they kick you out each um, as against nowadays. They kick you out every night, and you just have to sort of like sleep in the field or in a lane or something, and then like queue up and go back again. And the same thing um, in '67, there was the Windsor Jazz Festival. They called it the Windsor Jazz Festival. It's jazz and blues. But in actual fact, uh, Cream played there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really at their at their height. That was that was pretty. They were on the last night. Um, they, that was just a, a fun thing purely for the event. But the uh, the Dylan Festival was amazing because the Who were on on the Saturday night. And when we came out at the end of the Saturday night, I thought, got to be down the front for Dylan. Yeah, know? I sure. mean, that's the whole reason of going yeah. there. And so I had this idea that if we sleep by the turnstiles, we'll have to be the first ones in. Now, imagine, I mean, like, I don't know how many people went to that. I mean, like 100,000 or yeah, something or yeah. maybe a bit less. I don't know, but it was a lot. And as it got to about seven o'clock in the morning, everybody was taking a slight step forward. And there was a piece of basically like scaffolding. Oh, God. And we were getting crushed. And they weren't going to open the place up until about well, 10 the o'clock. Well, disaster, yeah. Yes, mm. exactly. Mm. Yeah. Fortunately, a cop who was actually in charge came round and shouted to the guy on the turnstiles there. He said, you've got to let them in, and you've got to let them in now. And it was really, he saved everybody's bacon. Because yeah. literally a minute or two later. He crashed. Because it, I mean, all this lot were going through just a few turnstiles. So they queued up for miles. They're all starting to push. Mm. So, yeah. Talk about turnstiles, Chappelle. I'm just reading up on you in the last couple of days to do this interview. And um, you were always born to play career, weren't you? Your, your, your grandfather, Victor Richardson, and... I had no idea of the history of your grandfather. Like I knew he captained the Australian cricket team. I didn't realise he was the South Australian Aussie Rules captain, but he also represented Australian baseball. He represented <laughs> South Australia in golf. He won the South Australian tennis title. He's also into cross basketball and swimming. Like a mad, amazing pedigree. There's they get a bit carried away. Yeah, do they? I, I think he might have played baseball for South Australia. Okay, I've never heard that he played. Well, I've read it, but yeah. I never heard it around the family. Okay, but yeah, I mean, if you read his book, in his early days, his week was like Monday night uh, basketball yeah. training, Tuesday night would be cricket training, Wednesday night would be lacrosse training. Thursday night cricket training again. It was every night of the week was training of some sort. Uh, he <clears throat> there's a guy called Snowy Baker who's mm. regarded as the best all round athlete that Australia's ever had. He 
He won, I think he was a rugby league player. He was either league or union, I forget now, but won a boxing medal at the Olympics and a few other, oh, swimming, I think he might have been a good swimmer. And Vic's regarded as the second uh, mm. one to Snowy Baker. Amazing. What, and, and what influence did he have on you as a kid? Like I know you, I remember you telling me years ago your dad would never let you or your brothers play with Anything but a cricket ball in the backyard. Cricket ball or baseball? Yeah, it's always uh, it had was to be hard ball. Hard ball. He didn't want us to be frightened of, yeah. the, of the ball. Um, Vic was uh, was an influence in that I admired him, and and you know I was lucky. Um, so I was vice captain of Australia when he died. So mm. you know I was twenty. Well, hang on, sixty. So I was about twenty six when yep. he died. So I had a chance to you know spend mm. time with him, and. <clears throat> Originally, as a young bloke, I admired him, obviously, because of his sporting uh, achievements. But then once I met him as a bloke, I really liked him. Uh, he was good oh, wow. company. Um, it was interesting. He and um, uh, uh, he and Bradman didn't get on, uh, as a lot of mm. guys before the war didn't get on with Bradman. And we'd be at a family function and someone would say, oh, Vic, what was Bradman like? And he'd say, great batsman. <laughs> and that was it. And as I got old enough, I realised you didn't ask any more questions. Right. And I thought for a long time that it was – he didn't want to poison my opinion of mm. Bradman because he, he knew that I'd have to deal with him a bit or he hoped that I'd have to deal with him a bit. But what he didn't know was that his eldest daughter, my mother, was doing a fine job because Jean was never short of an opinion. <laughs> she was quite prepared to state them and she did not like Bradman. <laughs> a very funny story. She uh, near the end of her life, she lived in a retirement village at Fulham, yep. which is was right at the end of Burbridge Road. Now Burbridge, Burbridge Road goes right down near the Adelaide Airport, and they changed the name of Burbridge Road to Sir Donald Bradman Drive. And Jean's playing mahjong with all her mates in the retirement village, <laughs> and, and they said, "Ah, oh, Jean, you'll have to drive down uh, Sir Donald Bradman Drive." I'll drive across that road, never down it. <laughs> <laughs> so, and um, so, how, I'll, ask, I'll ask the question: How, how did you find Bradman? Uh, great batsman. <laughs> <laughs> great answer. Um, but you know, unfortunately, I had to deal with him as captain of Australia mm. and captain of South Australia. See, the biggest problem I had with Bradman was. Um, I, because of the family situation, I knew a lot about the history of cricket mm. in that period. And I knew that Bradman had had trouble with the board and some of his problems with the board were over money. So I go to Bradman as captain of both Australia and South Australia looking to improve pay and conditions sure. for the players, thinking that I'm going to be talking to a guy who's going to have some empathy here. Yeah. And it was just the opposite. It was it was as though uh, I was asking him to spend his own money. Mm. I, I remember walking. I had two meetings with him in the, that situation, and I walked out of both thinking, "Did I just walk in there and put my wallet on the table yeah. and say, here, Don, fill that up with money?'" And then, but you know, I, I sort of took a leaf out of Vic's book. If I was asked about him, I just said, "My greatest regret in cricket is I never got to see him bat." I yeah. probably did because Martin played in the same club team. Okay. But I was – when we left Kensington, I was only about four, and so I don't have any memory of watching him bat. So that would be my answer until mm. was in the late 80s and someone was interviewing him 
and they said, uh, you know, these guys in World Series cricket got paid 30 mm. grand. What do you think you would have been worth? And I can't remember the bulk of his answer, but at the end of it, he said, and I did all that without getting divorced or getting my hair permed. So you made it personal. And I thought, <sighs> right, you little so-and-so, now yeah. it's personal. Yeah. So any time after that that I got asked, I mm. said, you know, I obviously was a great batsman, but as a human being, I had problems with him. It's disappointing to hear because um, I always say, to, and I'll thank you personally now, but I always say to, particularly to guys that I play with and the modern players, they should all thank Kerry Packer, Ian Chappell and Tony Gregg for what you guys did because the reason that the players make so much money these days is because of what these guys did and should never begrudge anyone any more dollars than you in the future because that's what it was done for. So thank you, mate. Yeah, yeah no. Um, and throw Dennis yeah. Lilly in because yes. Dennis Lilly really was the instigator. He got the whole thing started. Was he really? And he doesn't get he, – he never gets mentioned. I didn't mentioned. realise that. And he's the bloke who really should get mentioned because he got the whole thing started. And then – you see, the important thing about World Series cricket is that it wasn't just an Australian problem because I think originally there were about 51 players signed mm. and that was players from all different countries. So it was a problem worldwide. I know that England, uh, Ray Illingworth, John Snow, were absolutely livid uh, when the test match got abandoned in Melbourne, they played a one-dayer and then they put an extra test match on mm. at the end of the tour and Illy and, and John Snow were oh, absolutely livid because, one, they weren't asked whether they wanted to do this or not and they weren't offered any any oh, right. uh, recompense for playing gotcha. the extra game. So so it was a worldwide problem, not just an Australian problem. No, it definitely was. And, and what was what was Packer like then? Because it must have been – Good for good on you from one hand, but also tough because he said straight away because Greg was the current Australian career captain, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah. And Packer said, "Chapelli, you're the captain." Well, he the first time I went into his office, I I was playing club cricket for North Melbourne, so I used to fly. I was still living in Adelaide, so I'd fly to Melbourne on the Friday night, and so I would leave gear. I stayed at the same hotel every time, so I'd leave gear, uh, uh, cricket gear, and you know, street gear mm. at the hotel. So I'd just fly over in whatever I was wearing. And I got to Melbourne Airport and I got this message uh, from Austin Robertson, fly straight on to Sydney, you've got a meeting with Kerry Packer. So I had a pair of jeans, <laughs> I had like a country and western shirt and a <laughs> denim jacket on, you see. <clears throat> so I go into the Park Street office and Kerry's how I saw him every time I went in that office. He's laying back in the chair, <laughs> he's got his feet up on the desk with his shoes off. And I walked through the door and um, how are we off for language here? No, nah, just far away, mate. Because <laughs> um, when you've got Kerry and I together, there's yeah. going to be a bit. <laughs> you explain it. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a good battle. <laughs> he said to me once, he said, this is when I got yeah. pinged for yeah. swearing on television, yeah. you're like a fucking time bomb. I felt like saying, <laughs> so what about you? <laughs> Anyhow, um, yeah, I sort of walked through the door and there was no hello, how are you or anything. He said, what are you, some sort of fucking cowboy? <laughs> <laughs> How long did that show for? About a year. <laughs> <laughs> and then anyhow, we sat down and after a little while he handed me the sheet of paper. He said, anyone not on that list that you want in the team? And I said, hang on, Kerry, you know, Greg's captain yeah. of Australia. I'm, you know, I'm not the captain. What do you think this is, a fucking democracy? I'm paying the bills. I picked the captain. You're the captain. Uh, so I then I said to him, well, can I make a phone call? Who too? 
And I said, I don't want to have a family argument. Yeah. I'll ring Greg. So I rang Greg and Greg's exact words were, mate, it's a bastard of a job. You can have it. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my introduction to Kerry. But it was the thing I liked about Kerry. Well, there were a few things I liked about Kerry. He set very high standards. He he wanted the telecast to be the best. You know, he said they just Channel Nine had just covered the Australian Open golf <laughs> at, at the Australian Golf Club, and they'd covered all eighteen holes, which had never been done before. Yeah, okay. And the Yanks came out and watched it, and he said they've gone back to America and they're going to copy, try and copy our coverage. He said I want to do the same thing with cricket, which which actually happened because the BBC. Producer Keith McKenzie, sorry, director, he used to come out to Australia every Australian summer, watch the telecast, go back, and, you know, BBC uh, took on some of the innovations. So he achieved that. So that, that was one thing. Uh, you always knew where you stood with Kerry. He, if you got a phone call from Kerry, it was never going to be to say, well done. <laughs> yeah, there's something wrong. <laughs> yeah, something was wrong. But you knew where you stood with him and he was he paid well, which yep. obviously is – And a man of his a, word. Yes, and but he expected, you know, you're being paid well. Mm. I expect uh, a good performance in return. So there were a lot of things to like about him. He, he actually had um, – he had, a, albeit a very black – Sense of humour, but he did have a quite a good sense of yeah. humour, actually. But uh, in moments of rage, it didn't come out. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take a little break now. We've been hosted by Taffy Sports Bar at the Oaks Hotel Neutral Bay, which is one of the great sports bars in Sydney, that's for sure. The menu's outstanding, but today we're going to have some steaks. I think the uh, the ribeye and the bone, for me, definitely. That's 400 grams, actually. It's a good size. It comes with roasted bone marrow. I'll get it with chips and a salad some red wine and some O'Brien beer, of course. Beautiful. Let's get started on that as well. John O'Brien is a legend of Australia's beer industry. In 2003, he dreamed of producing a great-tasting beer that could be enjoyed by everyone, free from the ill effects of mass-produced wheat and barley. John began a brewing journey blending unique aromas and flavours offered by ancient grains such as sorghum and millet. He perfected recipes over time which have led to 40 local and international awards, including three gold medals at the Australian International Beer Awards, a gold medal at the Indies and a silver medal at the Beer World Cup. Proudly 100% Aussie-owned, made in Ballarat, O'Brien Beer is Australia's most awarded gluten-free beer and widely available around Australia through major retailers and online at rebellionbrewing.com.au. O'Brien Beer, the beer that loves your back. Spartan Sports is recognised as one of the world's most exciting and innovative sporting brands with a community focus. Our product range across cricket, rugby, football, volleyball, basketball and fitness has been developed to sell directly to any club, school, corporate or individual. Go to our website and order directly to your front door, www.spartansports.com. Spartan Sports, unearth the warrior in you. Chris, um, talk about captaincy there in a way, but um, is the producer almost like the captain of a when, when you when you're putting an album together? Um, I don't know about that. Uh, well, it's it's a strange sort of notion. Certainly, I mean, yeah. there are so many record producers. I mean, everybody's a kind of record producer now. Yeah. In the old days, you were kind of in charge of the whole thing. You know, really from sort of from cradle to grave. 
you know, you were the A&R man, you were the producer, so you looked after, you know, you, you took over the whole thing. I suppose um, it would have depended on on the, the band itself or, well, or the artist. Very much so, yeah. very much so. And also, more importantly, I mean, like, if you haven't got the song, you can't make a decent record. I mean, okay. that's that's the end of it. So I was very lucky because I always, and I always wanted to work with writers. That's the mm. most important thing, to work with uh, – I mean, that was that whole thing in the 70s of singer-songwriters coming out, you know, and they're the most, they're the most important people. And but, so you'd always refer – so I wasn't the captain that way. I always referred to the guy who was writing the song. Sure, okay. yeah. Last time you were on the show, I asked you a lot about the Beatles, but this time I want to ask you more about um, Pink Floyd and then and your involvement with Dark Side of the Moon. Mm. How did you find that? Well, that was really – I only worked on it right at the end, yep. to be honest. Yeah, yep. they, they'd, already, um, they'd already recorded virtually everything. And I don't think they were having arguments. You know, there's a lot of stuff saying that like David and Roger were sort of, you know, but I think all that stuff came later. It certainly wasn't aware. I wasn't aware of, well, that's it. They didn't mention anything to me. I mean, like, and I'd obviously be aware of it in the, in the room if anything was going on. Um, they were actually, they were great to work with. Um, really efficient the way they work. No messing about really, you know, they might only do a small amount of work that day, but what they did stuck. It's quality, you know, was it? It was absolutely, that was the most important thing. Yeah, and so I came in on the end of the record, uh, which was ostensibly to sort of put another opinion in when they were mixing it, because everybody's involved in that. Um, Do you listen back now to that stuff you've mixed and go, I could have done it better, or it's great, or you're proud of it? Is it well? Does it vary? You avoid that by not going back and listening, because <laughs> I either <laughs> get very hard. depressed. Either well, yeah, I okay. listen to stuff, I went, oh no, <laughs> you know. But it'd be or, hard not to if you get yeah. in a car and the radio's on. Well, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Well, sometimes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, normally the ones that are on the radio, you change see, stations. <laughs> you can, you yeah, but the good thing about the radio is the radio only plays the ones that are pretty good. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. they don't play your rubbish. So. It's interesting you talk about dynamics there, Ian. And um, so, what do you think makes makes a good captain? Because you've got to understand personalities, as you mentioned before. You've got to understand what makes people tick. You've also got to do your own job. There's a lot of factors to making a good captain. And I, and I in my opinion, I reckon you're the greatest creative captain of all time. Well, I don't know about that, but well, um, <clears throat> yeah, there are a lot of factors. Um, I, you know, you do you you have to know your own players. Mm-hmm. But you also have to know the opposition as well. You have to be able to read body language pretty well. I mean, it helps to be an amateur psychologist. And, yeah. you know, I, I mean, it wasn't something I studied or I, I'm, I think I might just got lucky there yeah. that I, you know, was able to pick character fairly mm. well. Um, I've often said, and, and this is not said in jest, uh, I was lucky I was a drinker um, okay. because – if you're a drinker, you're in the bar, you're spending time with your team, you're getting to know them in a different situation, yep. but you're also used to dealing, you know, man-to-man and, mm. and sorting out problems, things like that. If you look at Mark Taylor, who I thought was a terrific captain, yep. Tubby's a drinker, you know, yep. and and I think it, uh, I think it definitely helps. Um, um, but... You know, when I got the job, I think we'd lost or not lost, but we hadn't won a test for 10, I think. Mm. And so I got the job and I thought, oh, this is a tough job. (laughs) And then I thought to myself, well, hang on. You know, we haven't been winning under Bill. If we don't win under me, no one, everyone's going to say, well, you know, why would they? And I thought, well, if I win a game pretty quickly, they might think I'm a genius. So I promptly lost the first two tests. I 
So there was no danger they were ever going to think I was a genius. But what I did then, I'd played under three captains, uh, two for Australia, Simpson and Bill Laurie. And Les Favre. And then Les Favre for yeah. South Australia. So I, I wrote down, I got a sheet of paper and I wrote down on one side all the things I liked about their captaincy and on the other side all the things I didn't like. Wow, okay. So I tried to do the things that I liked. The things that I didn't like, I thought, well, if I don't like those, for instance, one thing was yelling at players in front of everybody, on the field, in the dressing room. You know, that I don't think anybody mm. likes that. So, you know, I've always said that you, um, uh, that you praise in public, you castigate in private. Mm. Um, so I wrote all those things down and then – at the end, I said, now you just got to put your own stamp on it. Um, so that was, you know, that was my philosophy. But, yeah, there's a lot of things. I mean, it was a hell of a lot simpler job, mm. uh, I'd have to say that. When, when they had that stupid Argus review, um, yeah. I went in and they said to me, is there anything you want to say before we ask you questions? And I said, yeah. I said, if you produce a system that produces a lot of good competitive young cricketers mm -hmm. and a few strong leaders. And I said, you let them play and you let them lead and the rest will pretty well take care of itself. But And I threw the hand grenade in on yeah. purpose and I said, but you can't captain Australia properly at the moment. And what do you mean? And I said, well, at least when I was captain, I only had one bloke to tell to piss off. I said, now very true. there's all these people. Yeah. You can't tell that many people to piss off. Mm. So what did they do? They put another layer of management in. Yeah. Um, absolute stupidity. But, you know, what, what I'm referring to there is the only bloke, and I only had one. I, I was very fortunate with the managers I had on tour. I only had one who, who wanted to stick his nose into the cricket playing business. He said, oh, mate, mate, you know, we've got to win. We've got to beat the bastards. And I said uh, – <clears throat> well, he's dead now. Fred, I said, Fred, you tell us what time the cabs are, what days the official functions are, make sure the boys get their checks on time and leave the rest to yeah. us and we will beat the bastards. Yeah. But all the other managers, not one of them mentioned anything of the cricket side. So they ran the off-field stuff. I ran the cricket, obviously with the help of yeah. vice-captain, third selector and some mm. senior. Here's another area where I was lucky. So the whole time I was captain, I had Rod Marsh next to me as a wicketkeeper. Yes. Now, I think if you look at all the really good cricket teams in history, there's always not only a good wicketkeeper yeah. but a smart wicketkeeper. Yes. And, you know, that to me is crucial because you can get a lot of information yep. from a smart wicketkeeper. And then on the other side of me, I had the vice captain, mm. Keith Stackpole originally and then Greg after that. So here's a whole lot of information and I don't have to go rushing around. I just quietly in between balls, you can have a chat and uh, – It's very true. Yeah. I remember Chris went one uh, – I was in the Creed Academy in 1994 and um, we had three specialist weeks. So Rod Marsh was the head coach. Justin Langer had just played, I think, two or three tests – the Australian career teams, he was a, he was assistant coach to Rod Marsh. And the three specialist weeks were we did a fast bowling week with Dennis Stilly, which was amazing, mm. and we did um, a week with Ian Chappell, how to play spinners and how to play short pitch bowling. So being all around, I was lucky enough to be across all three. And um, I remember a great drill that we did with you. We paired up um, guys. So I was with Andrew Simons. We had mm -hmm. four spinners within the academy. They bowled one over each. And Ian said, don't be cheap. You're not allowed to hit the ball over the top. You can hit the ball on the ground. You've got to use your feet um, and you can't sweep. He said that was an easy out. So we had to try and score as many runs as we could for four overs. And Andrew Simon's and I, I think we were 
we got the highest score. We got 25 off the four overs. And Chappelle, said to that's fucking bullshit. And he said, he said to Justin Lee, put the pads on. If we don't get more runs than you tonight, <laughs> you guys, I'll buy the beers. And it was only because Justin Lee let Chappelle down. I think they fell one short. But to your word, you shout us beers all night, you did. Ram, Rams go home <laughs> too. <laughs> the boys started ordering shots and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was, that was no, I think I was smart in that. I think I put 100 bucks on the bar <laughs> yeah, and yeah. said, when that's finished, you're on your own. <laughs> I, I want to jump now, Chris, to um, to someone I always found as a as a great artist and a great songwriter, but Elton John. What, what was it like working with him? Extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. Because- is, he, is he a genius? Yeah, I think, yeah he is. I think he is. I really yeah. do think he is. I mean, the the speed that he works at, nobody worked you harder than Elton because he was just bang, 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 bang. And you had to retain all that information, you know. Um, the most extraordinary thing about him, I think is it's pretty well known that he would have these lyrics sent over by Bernie and he put them up in front of the piano and he Because they never wrote a song in the same room, did no, they? No, no, he'd just come in with like, a pile of lyrics and put yeah. them on the piano. He'd start sort of tinkling away there sometimes and then like sometimes he'd see him. I'd be in the, in the control room looking at him. He'd be in there on his own. On his own. You'd see him scrunch it up like, you know, he's going, like, <laughs> can I better do it? <laughs> and then another one, he'd be he would, he'd never spent more than 15 minutes writing a song, never more than that, which is just, in, I mean, it's in, incomprehensible. So just, just- I know that he wrote one in real time once. There's a song called Sad Songs. Yeah. Um, and we were having lunch upstairs in Montserrat and he said, I'm just going down. I said, all right, I'll see you. He says, I'm just going down to the studio. So I'll see you there in a minute. And it was literally about five minutes. And I walked Jeez. in there and I saw him jump up from, from the piano stool with his arms in like he'd scored a goal. Mm. And I thought, wow. For what? And I, and, huh? <laughs> For what? <laughs> <laughs> that was his same, wasn't it? And he'd written, he'd written, he'd written that song in that time. He'd literally gone through the lyric, blah, 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 and he could then remember everything that he that he did. Most people they want to put. So a he demo wasn't even down. recording it. No. So, so I find that amazing. So Bernie Taupin sends him like I've got some notes in front of me here, yeah. some words on, on a page, yeah. and he sees those words, and he must evoke some emotion for him to put the melody down. Well, I mean, the thing about Elton is, I reckon that you could actually open, you can open up this menu, and he could probably write a hit song out. Yeah, of that. I mean, that's really bizarre. Oh, I've, I've, I've seen one on YouTube where he he gets the uh, the oven manual. Oh, there you to go. A new oven, and he, and he writes a song to that. Yeah. And somehow there's a bit where you feel sorry for the oven. <laughs> that's right. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not check out a previous episode with another great Australian career captain, Mark Taylor, who was joined by Nick Far Jones, where we talk all things cricket and rugby. Um, Chappelle, what what was um, this is a big call, but you had Dennis and, and Tomo in your team. What was it like captaining two great fast bowlers? Bloody easy, mate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Dennis was easy because all you had to do with Dennis was say, "Mate, no one from Western Australia has taken five wickets <laughs> at the SCG on a Wednesday." Well, fucking see about that, and. Off you go. But the other thing about Dennis was if there was a problem on the field, for instance, you know, if he was getting a bit heated yep. and uh, there was looking like there was going to be a problem with the umpire, you had to agree with him. You'd go up to him and you'd say, Dennis, the umpire's a dickhead, mm. but if he reports you and you're suspended for a couple of games, you're not much use to us. So whatever, it, you know. To, so as long as you 
you know, supported him. I mean, you wag your finger at Dennis yeah. and good luck with yes. that. Yeah. Um, Tomo was, you know, Tomo was easy actually. Yeah. When he came into the well, he he played in seventy two three against Pakistan, but he played with a broken bone in his foot and okay. didn't he didn't tell me. Anyhow, we um, he got none for one hundred and ten, um, but you could tell you know he was quick. Yeah, you could tell that. And anyhow, the fourth evening we'd set Pakistan about two hundred and ninety to get, and obviously part of bowling him out was Jeffrey Robert Thompson. Yeah. And he's come and we're having a beer in the dressing room and he came to me and he said, oh, I can't bowl tomorrow, mate. I said, why? What's the problem? He said, I've got a broken bone in my foot. I said, oh, when did you do that? He said, oh, I came into the game. I said, mate, why do-? he said, oh, I wanted to play. <laughs> but it obviously had got worse. And just before I go on a bit more about time, at the end of we finished up winning that game. Um, and that night we were sitting around and Ian Redpath said, oh, we found a good one found a good one in this game, and I said, yeah, bloody oath we did. Mm. He said, yeah, Max Walker. I said, mate, you can go to any beach in Australia yeah. and you can find a good seamer. Yeah. I said, but you find you yeah. go finding someone who can bowl 100 miles an hour, there's not many of them no. around. I said, you take Max, yeah. I'll take Tomo, thanks very much. <laughs> very true. But he, he then, before he played in 74-5, was the quote about – I'm just as happy to see blood on the pitch yeah. as get a guy out. And I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. But Tomo, <clears throat> Tomo didn't uh, – the only bloke Tomo abused was himself. Some of the things he said, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> after he's bowled a few – I mean, Greg, Greg got the worst of it because Tomo's idea of pre-season training was three months deep sea fishing in Cairns, you see. <laughs> So he'd always come in for the first shield game and there'd be wides and no balls. Anyhow, Greg's – there's been a couple of overs of wides and no balls. Greg's come running down to him and said, mate, get your rack together, will you? Yeah, yeah, mate, mate, in, in a minute, in a minute. Not in a minute, now, you know. <laughs> and Greg's about to go back to first slip and Tom said, hey, mate, yeah, yeah, what do you want? He said, which side do you hold the shine for the outside? <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the even better one, the next, the next season, the, <clears throat> the Brisbane Technical School um, <clears throat> used to be uh, right next to the Gabba and there was a tree in the yard and that was Tomo's bowling mark. When he got back to the tree, he turned, boom, and he'd come in and bowl. And apparently in the winter, they've cut the trees out. <laughs> you see, you so, know where to run from. No, so, <laughs> and yeah, he's bowling all these wides and no balls again. You see, Greg's going, Jesus, mate, get it, get your act together. Well, yeah, yeah, mate, in a minute, yeah. And Greg's about to go back and he says, hey, mate, um, he said, do I take 14 paces or 12 paces <laughs> yeah. in my runner? Because they'd cut the tree down. <laughs> mate, fast bowls, I grew up with oh. one. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the funny thing is, um, well, not the funny thing, you mentioned like blood on the wicket, but look at the NRL on the weekend. I think we mentioned just before we, we went on air, but um, there were 21 injuries on the weekend. Eight were HIA, right? Um, head injuries, um, concussion. And but you guys played without helmets. Hmm. Why weren't players being hit in the head then? Is, is there a technique now? Yeah, there's – yeah, I mean, you had a vested interest in not getting hit in the yeah, head because sure you knew it was going to hurt like hell <laughs> and could be serious. But I think we – I think every cricketer went onto the field knowing that you could get hurt, but you won't get killed until Philip Hughes. And there, then like that, that changed things. Yeah. But yeah, the technique has changed a lot. It was much more of a back foot technique. Yes, it was. 
And, you know, the way, and I don't know whether you remember this from the academy, but what I used to say to the guys was if I put you on the other side of a wire mm-hmm. fence and I throw the ball at you uh, straight at your head, even though you know there's a wire fence there, yeah. you'll flinch because yeah. it's human yeah. nature. Yeah. But I said, if I throw it away from you, you mm. won't flinch. Mm. So the theory being that if you get inside yeah. the ball yeah. to hook it, you know at least if I miss it, it's yeah. going to miss me. Now, I always felt that it was a better idea that I was missing the ball rather than relying on the ball missing me. Um, but when you, and with all the protective equipment now, it's much more of a front foot it technique. Is. Yep. And once you charge onto the front foot, you you can't really get in. It's difficult to get inside the line of the ball because you could actually on with the back foot technique, you could once you saw the guy bang it in short, you'd make it. Well, I would certainly make a second move to get inside yep. it, but you can't do that with the front foot technique. They can't. Now and. You know, going back to what I was saying about throwing the ball at you, once once you're trying to hook and the ball's coming straight out, you, you'll turn your head. You have to have a natural instinct, yeah, doesn't once, it? Yeah. Now, the, the reason why or one of the reasons why not a lot of guys got hit is because the hook shot's not an easy shot to play and you've got to watch the ball so closely to play it. And if you're watching the ball closely, you won't get hit. You might you might top edge one yeah. back into your head, but you yeah. won't get a direct hit. Yeah. I don't think because you know if it is coming straight at you, it's amazing how quickly you can you get can, the, yeah. the head out if you're watching the ball. Once you take your eye off the ball, then good luck. I was I was actually doing some uh, research. Just watching a few old um, uh, clips of you batting, and I saw you get hit in the back of the head. Now, before you answer that question, it wasn't you playing a hook shot. You actually punched one two. It was against the West Indies. You punched one two. I think to a short point, and you ran one, and he threw the ball hit you in the back of the head when you were running. Do you remember that? Well, stop saving me getting run out, probably. <laughs> it did, it did, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you you used to do that. I mean, yeah. the, the dopey lawmakers <clears throat> now won't let you. You know, you get called out for interference nah, now. That's right. Yeah, but I mean, you always tried to get yourself 100%. between the throw and the stumps. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Chris, I want to ask you. Um, and I, I. We're having a beer one night and we're playing the guitar as I normally do and mm. sing badly in front of you, which is quite embarrassing. But anyway, that's another story. But um, I, I thought that David Bowie was one of the most influential artists of last century and you said Buddy Holly was. Do you want to explain why? No, I didn't say Buddy Holly as yeah. against, but uh, as no, against no, David no, Bowie. No, 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 not against, but you said he was one of the most influential. Very, very definitely. I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, on a personal note, he was the thing that got me into the whole thing. Right. Um, but he had an immense effect on the Beatles and specifically Paul. Right, okay. You know, was a, I think he was probably, Paul would sort of say. He wrote Sammy's songs and died at the age of 22. That's yeah. incredible. Absolutely incredible. Amazing. I know. I know. And, and really, he was kind of producing his own stuff anyway. I mean, like on his, he he was like one of these one-man shows, you know, mm. that that's where the whole thing sort of comes from. Uh, if you look at most bands, there's always somebody in there there's, there's normally somebody in there that's actually um, sorry. <laughs> if you if you look at most bands, it's normally there's one guy there that's like in charge, that's doing the writing and doing that, you know. But Buddy Holly was the first person I think of. He wrote his own songs, you know, and that influence has gone all, all the way through everything. I, I in 2004, I think it was. I went to Wembley Arena, not yeah. the stadium. Yeah, yeah. Wembley Arena to see the 50th anniversary of the Strato, Stratocaster. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know this. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. First band on that night, the Crickets. Oh, fantastic. Oh, right. Crickets were the first band on that night. The, and they were the originals, as far as I know. 
Um, yeah, I think, yeah. well, um, Paul used to do a Buddy Holly week in September mm-hmm. of every year to celebrate uh, the Buddy Holly's birthday. And he brought the crickets over in, I think, 1977 or 78, with Jerry Allison, Joe Maudlin, the, the yeah. originals. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a fantastic yeah. event that he used to put on. If you don't mind me no, asking no. a question, I am a great admirer of Lennon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what was he like to work with? He was fab- really fabulous. Yeah. Really, really. He's a, he, was a, he was a really great guy. Smart. A really a, Very smart, but a very kind guy. But yeah. he was, his first defense would be a bit, you know, he was, he was kind of a bit defensive. So he'd be a bit aggressive in his defense. Yeah. yeah. But uh, once you sort of got to know him, he was, uh, he was a sweetheart. And yeah. and yeah, apart from being, you know, so talented. You could see that in his press conferences. The, you yes. Know, yes. Throw a punch first. So, but he would do it with humor most of the time. Absolutely. Or yeah. take the mickey out of the yeah. guy yeah. asking yeah, yeah, a question. Yeah, yeah. He was yeah, yeah. very oh, good at hilarious. that. He was actually, that was the, one of the things, he was one of the funniest people in the world. Absolutely. Mm. He, yeah. he would... I've seen him. He would destroy the control room sometimes. He'd do something, and like everybody would stop, you know, start laughing, and you'd get the giggles. And it was like it was like mm. stop, stop, you know. <laughs> they were they were they they did have a great sense of humour there between the four of them. Yeah, it was a, a really a the, really the scouser the scouser sense of humour. Oh well, that's something else. <laughs> yeah. yeah, everything about them's funny. Special. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Chapelli, I Mad. ask I ask every guest on this show the same question, um, and I want to get your advice um, if. There's a young creator coming through right now. What advice would you give them? Um, I would I'd put Michael Hussey up as an example and say, build – sorry, if he's a batsman, yep. I'm talking, yeah. Yep. Um, build a good foundation and then you'll be able to play any form of the game you want. Don't get caught up with this rubbish about mm. building a technique to score 10 runs and over so as you get an IPL contract. Have a look at Michael Hussey. He was a very good test match player. He was a very good 50-over player. He was a very good 20-over player. Yeah, he was. And I've always said a good cricketer will adapt. If you tell – you know, I'm talking mostly batsmen now because I don't know a lot about bowling. But if you tell a batsman you've got five days to play, he'll bat accordingly. If you tell him you've got 50-overs, he'll bat accordingly. If you tell him he's got 20 overs, he'll adjust mm. to that. Mm. But to me, it's easier to do that or better to do that with the foundation that a guy like Michael Hussey had. He had a, he had a very good Dead. foundation. You know, he could defend, but he could attack as mm. well. And that's, to me, that's what you need to be able to play all three forms. And I think if you want to be if you're just there for the money, well, you know, go organise a technique that'll get you 10 runs yeah. and over. But if you're there to, one, enjoy the game and two, to longevity. make a name for yourself that, where people respect you as a very good cricketer, not a very good T20 player mm. or very good one-day player, then have a look at Michael Hussey and build that strong foundation. And Chris, what advice would you give to a young kid who now wants to go into music? Um, well, going back to writing, I'd say definitely yeah. write your own stuff. Okay. And don't dismiss the idea of also of collaborating with other musicians because, I mean, you just look at mm. you look at how, you know, what a genius John was, but how yeah. he, you know, the fact that he worked with Paul, they, they, it made them up their games all the time. And there are collaborations that happen and there's always somebody there who can improve, like, you know, what you've come up with. A lot of people now, they, they've got all the equipment at home. I mean, things have changed a lot. They've got these things that they've got everything at home. So they've got their computer there and they do their own stuff and they write everything. 
Um, but it's it's always good to play with other people and also to play with other people, get a band going because you know yourself from yeah. you playing in a band, you know, things start developing, those things bounce off and you, and yes, you pick sure. up on, on the accidents mm. so that, you know, that's, that's the best thing to do. Well, I thank you both for coming on the show. Chris, I always enjoy your company, mate. We, we catch up uh, very often these days, which is fantastic. And I'm, I'm, gra- I'm glad to hear that you're, you're fit and healthy again, mate, thank which you. is great. And Ian, thank you, mate. Thank you, Nani, for being a good uh, role model um, for cricketers these days, but what you've done for the generation of cricketers that followed you, mate, and um, you're a superstar. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Joe. Good you, mate. Thanks, boys. That's it for Lunch With Lee this week. A big thank you goes out to our guests, Ian Chappell and Chris Thomas. Thanks to Hilton Headley for your hard work behind the scenes and making things happen. And thanks to our sponsors, Athlon Partners, O'Brien Beer and Spartan Sports. And thanks to Taffy Sports Bar at the Oaks Hotel Neutral Bay. Make sure you hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. And come check us out on our socials. I'm at Lunch With Lee. We'll be back next week chatting some more legends about sport, music and business on another cracker episode of Lunch With Lee. We'll see you then.